Four years ago, I was working on my dissertation, which was titled, Churches That Are Growing Godly Leaders. And I decided to do it by, first of all, researching some churches that were growing godly leaders, both lay leaders and vocational leaders, from coast to coast and from border to border, ten churches I studied. And uh, in that process, Dr. Howard Bixby, the dean of Baptist Bible Seminary, said, one church I'd really like to see you study in uh, this would be Colonial Baptist Church of Cary, North Carolina. And so I came here in September of 2003 and uh, met with Pastor Davey and got to know your church and the heartbeat here and pastor's heartbeat. And I have to tell you that I came to love him that day. I've heard him preach on a number of occasions since then. And I happen to think that he's the best Bible expositor in the country. And uh, it's just a joy to be in his pulpit preaching. And uh, I wish he could be here today. But on the other hand, I don't know if I would want him to hear me preach. Uh, I would rather hear him preach. But it's a joy to be with you today. I was a pastor for 42 years before the Lord called me to... uh, Faith Baptist Bible College. As a matter of fact, it was a difficult thing for me. In January of this year, uh, the board extended uh, a call for me to this office, and I asked for six weeks to pray about it and told them I would get back with them. And a week before I got back with them, I said to my wife, Leslie, I think God's given me peace about saying no. And she said, why is that? And I said, well... All of my education is in pastoral ministry. All of my experience is in pastoral ministry. And my passion is in pastoral ministry. And she said, but hasn't God also given you a passion to see young people raised up for vocational Christian service? And God used that little bit of counsel from my dear wife and some counsel from a friend of mine, Dr. John Greening, and uh, Proverbs chapter 5 Uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, to direct my steps to say yes. And so I began the 1st of July uh, to uh, serve Faith Baptist Bible College. Uh, I'm loving it. I'm loving to get to know the students and uh, what a thrill they've been. We've already had some cookouts with those who hung around for the summer and just some great times, and it's been a delight. And if any of you teens are interested in a good Bible college, one of the things I have to say is it would be hard to beat the faculty of Faith Baptist Bible College. We have brilliant men, uh, talented men, and men who are not sitting in ivory towers. One of the amazing things is that two of our leading professors in the seminary are both pastoring growing churches. Uh, One, the dean of the seminary, uh, Dr. Schmidt, has just uh, started a church right in Ankeny. It's been going since, uh, I think, the first of the year, and uh, they're running about 70 or 80 people there now. And uh, just uh, a number of our faculty are deeply, deeply involved in local church ministries while they're teaching. And uh, not just that, but incredibly well-prepared academically. A lot of our professors have dual doctorates in uh, different fields and... uh, It's just a a wonderful place to be. So if God's called you uh, into ministry and 
you're looking for a good Bible college, I know you have a good seminary right here, and I wouldn't want to take anyone away from the seminary here, but uh, certainly in the Bible college level. One goal that God has laid on my heart this year is to raise 10,000 people who will commit to praying at least once a week that God would send labors into his harvest. That's taken from Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, where Jesus said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into his harvest. To my knowledge, that's the only prayer request Jesus left with us. And yet I have to confess before you that until this year, I never on a regular basis prayed for labors to go into the harvest. Somebody else said to me when I shared this burden, uh, did you realize too that's the only recruitment tool that God has given us for laborers for the harvest? That is pastors and missionaries and evangelists and Christian teachers. Uh, And what a wonderful tool it is. If you would be willing to join me in that, uh, I have a display out in the hallway And on that display are some things you can take if you're interested in faith, but also there are three bright green sign-up sheets where you can write your name and your email address, and we'll keep in touch with you and let you know how things are coming as we hear of people called into the ministry. Uh, The night before last, I was walking across campus, and I saw a couple that... uh, looked somehow like they didn't belong there. They looked a little scary. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll go over and meet them. So I walked across and talked with this couple. It was just getting dark and introduced myself. And I found that the young man was saved about three or four years ago. And right after he got saved, he enrolled at Faith Baptist Bible College. And he was with us just one semester. And then he met the love of his life and he got married and didn't come back. And I asked him, have have you considered coming back? And he said, you know, I would would really love to, but uh, I don't know now that I'm married if I can afford to. And I said, you know, I'll give you some advice I've given to hundreds of people over the years, and that is when you're seeking the will of God, leave the money till last because God never orders something he doesn't pay for. And God will provide And I would encourage any of you teens who are here looking at a college, just make sure it's God's place. Don't let the money determine it, because God will provide it. It doesn't mean you won't have to work. My last uh, couple of years in college, I worked 40 hours and took a full load and uh, slept in Baptist history class, but... uh, But uh, I made it through, and it doesn't mean you won't have to work, and it'll be easy, but but God can can help you. So if you'd be interested in signing up, by the way, uh, that young man came along with his wife and sat in my office for an hour, and we talked about the will of God, and we prayed, and he said, I'm really excited. They want my wife and me to disciple them as soon as we get moved to Ankeny. We're moving there. October the 1st, my wife has been back in Wisconsin selling the house and getting rid of horses, and she's going to join me in in Ankeny on the 1st of October. Psalm 100, beginning with verse 1, the Bible says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. 
Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. We see here in Psalm 100 a call to worship. What a beautiful call it is, too, as the Lord says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. In this invitation, as we see it in verse 1, we see uh, a broad invitation. As a matter of fact, it's a universal invitation where the Bible says, uh, at least in the King James and the New King James, all ye lands, the word is translated from the Hebrew word ha'aretz, which means all the earth. Uh, Now, most of our earth is covered by nations, one way or another, either uh, uh, independent nations or dependencies or territories of all nations, but the Lord isn't missing a soul here as he makes a universal invitation to worship. I believe that one of the reasons that God has given us, or the prime reason that God has given us, for witnessing isn't so that we can fill our people so we'll have bigger offerings so that we can build bigger buildings, but it's rather so that there will be more people to worship Him. God wants all to worship Him. Now, that's not a selfish desire on the part of God, because who could we worship that would be greater than God? What set of uh, characteristics could we admire more than God's attributes? So he issued this invitation to the entire earth. And then he gives us some instructions for carrying out the invitation. First of all, in verse 1, he said, make a joyful noise. An interesting word, ruach, it sounds like spirit in, in Hebrew. But uh, the word joyful noise is translated in some of your translations, a joyful shout or a shout or something like that. Uh, It's a hard word to translate because it's used of loud sounds of various kinds. It's used of instrumental music. It's used of vocal music. It's used of uh, just a, a plain shout that doesn't have music attached to it. It's used in a lot of ways, but one of the prevailing themes or threads of meaning that that you see in it, uh, however it's used, is joyfulness. God wants to come before him joyfully. And then we are to serve the Lord with gladness. Worship is service. Uh, The Bible constantly admonished the Old Testament Israelites not to serve other gods, but to serve the living and true God. 
And by service, God was speaking of worship, at least that embraces a part of the meaning of service. But just as surely as Mary sat at Jesus' feet and worshiped him by listening to the word of God and drinking every word that he said, she was serving just as surely as Martha, who was cumbered about with much serving. The Lord Jesus said, Mary had chosen the better part. Come before his presence with singing, the psalmist said. Renana speaks of joyful singing. It's not the funeral dirge. It is joyful singing, and God loves joyful worship. Then we are to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. One of the things that I believe thanksgiving connotes is a sense of unworthiness and a sense of need. As we come before God and we thank him for what he's done, we're recognizing we couldn't have done those things. As we thank God for who he is, we recognize that we are not holy in the sense that God is holy. We're not just in the sense that God is just. We're not worthy, but we come to him with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. You know, those last two, into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, suggest, I think, for us that when we come to church, we shouldn't come right off of having a a fight in the car, should we? Or uh, yelling at each other to get ready uh, when uh, we're ready to leave the house. Uh, My sons used to, or laugh now at the way I used to call up the stairway and say to them, five minutes. And my younger son said, when uh, my older son met Donna, who, to whom he's now married, that the roles reversed, and he was the one yelling, five minutes. In other words, he wanted to get to church where he could see his girlfriend. <laughs> Be thankful to him, the Bible says. Praise his holy name. One of the things that you see in these verses is the sense of heart felt worship. There's an itinerary here, and that is that God has called us to assemble to worship, because when the Bible says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving in verse 4, that is a plural verb, enter. It's plural, and so God is calling us collectively to worship Him. Now, sometimes people have told me, well, I can worship God better alone. One man told me, I own uh, many acres of timberland, and I love to walk out in God's nature and worship Him there. Now, that's wonderful but it doesn't supplant what God is saying here, that we're also to worship Him collectively. The Bible tells us that we are to come before His presence with singing. We're to collectively worship Him. God loves the sound of that. 
One other thing I'd like to say about the word enter there in verse 4, and that is that it is in the imperative. It's not optional. It is a command to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Before I can worship God, I must believe in him. The Bible says, him that cometh unto God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. As Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well in Sychar of Samaria, he said to her in John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is come when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what.'" And intentionally, Jesus used a neuter pronoun there because some people don't worship a who but a what. They will worship idols. They'll worship material things, particularly in our culture. And he said, ye know, worship ye know not what, but true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Jesus introduced himself as the Christ to her in verse 26. Until a man is saved, he doesn't know what he's worshiping. On the other hand, a man may seek to worship the true and living God, but if he doesn't know him, if he doesn't believe in him, he's not able to to know him. And so what Jesus said is still true. Ye worship, ye know not what. If you have not come to Christ as your personal Savior, if you've not bowed before him and received him as your Savior, that is still awaiting your first true act of worship. And that's why God created you. That is why Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin. Our worship should be designed to satisfy Him, not to gratify ourselves. He directs us to worship corporately, not to the exclusion of personal worship by any means, but to worship Him corporately along with the personal worship. He directs us to come before uh, him with thanksgiving and praise, to be joyful, to be thankful, and to give him glory. In verse 3, there's another thing I'd like you to notice about uh, this 100th Psalm, and that is that uh, we are called to acknowledge him. Verse 3 Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are the people, and or his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Who is God relative to us? Well, first of all, he's our creator. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. There, there's a lot in that thought, if you think of it. God as creator has a right to us. He has a right to our worship. He has a right to our obedience, a right to our service. And we have obligations to him. 
There's a clear lesson here also as to who is superior to whom. The one who created, the creator, is superior to the creature. Second, he is our shepherd because the Bible tells us in verse 3 that we are the sheep of his pasture. And God, as our shepherd, provides for us. He protects us and he leads us. Philip Keller, who wrote the book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, said that as he looks at Psalm 23, as he, Philip looks at Psalm 23, he sees in his mind's eye a sheep over by the fence bragging to a sheep on the other side of the fence that his shepherd is better, that he leads us and cares for us and prepares a table before us. Sometimes we choose someone with whom to associate rather casually. But God said, we are His people. Back in 2000, my younger daughter, Renee, uh, sat down on the couch next to her husband, Joe, to watch the first game of the World Series, and she asked him, Joe, who are you for? And he said, well, I'm rooting for the Yankees. And Renee said, and this was her basis of choice, well, if you're rooting for the Yankees, I'll root for the Yankees. Little Alexis, uh, their oldest daughter, who was two and a half at that time, said, I'm for George W. Bush. (laughs) We have different ways, don't we, of choosing with whom we identify. But when the Bible says we're the sheep of his pasture, it's not a casual identification. It is a deep-seated identification from personal relationship. The first week that I was in office at Faith Baptist Bible College, my secretary said to me, and I want you to know this was based on no previous knowledge of me, but she said, there's a church that called and wants you to come speak there, but, you know, I I think it's not a very big church, and I'm not sure you'd want to go there. And I said, well, where is it? And she told me the name of the church. I said, I started that church. (laughs) That was my first ministry. She said, I think you'll be going. And uh, indeed, I did. Uh, that was a relationship or, or an association based on a relationship. And that's what we have with the Good Shepherd. He is our shepherd. Who are we relative to God? We're His people. That term has special significance. When the Bible speaks of the people of God, it doesn't do so casually. Israel were called the people of God in the Old Testament, a peculiar people. God calls both them and Gentile believers in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, uh, were a, a people that belong to him. There's the sense there of ownership, and there's a special relationship. If you'd like an interesting study sometime, Study how God uses that term in the Bible, the people of God. In the New Testament, God has broken down the middle wall of partition between believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and we are all the people of God. 
We are his people, the Bible says. It connotes a special relationship between God and those who belong to him. Then we are the sheep of his pasture. In this, we see ourselves as helpless and vulnerable as we stand before God. Were it not for him, we would be helpless entirely. These are things we must know. That's why he said in verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, he hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The word know here has the sense of recognition. We know something because we've discovered it. We recognize this. But also there's the sense of acknowledgement. Sometimes people recognize things to be true, but they don't acknowledge them in the sense of acting upon them or taking ownership of that truth. A man sat in my office on Thursday morning. As we got acquainted, he gave me his testimony. When he was uh, 20, well, he was raised in a liberal church, but when he was 24 years of age, he decided he was going to read through the Bible. He said, I slugged my way through the book of Leviticus and First Chronicles, and he said, I got finally into the New Testament and then to the book of Romans. And he came to the third chapter of the book of Romans, and without the help of any other person, the Bible says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, just by reading God's Word, he came to know Christ as his Savior. His name is Mark. What a thrill that was, but I thought, Romans 3, that talks about my sin. It talks about how I'm not righteous before God. How do you get saved reading that you're a sinner? Well, of course, that's the first step, isn't it, to to realize our need of a Savior. But later on in the book of Romans, and I had to pick up my Bible and read this after he had left, I was reminded, beginning in verse 21, that the Bible says, "But but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. What a wonderful passage to read to find out how to be just before God, how to be righteous in the eyes of God. There's a case for worship built in the fifth verse of Psalm 100, and uh, that is this. For the Lord is good, His merciful is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. We're to worship God because God is good. You know, people worship all kinds of things. 
I uh, dealt with a lady just before her death who had been involved all of her lifetime in the occult. Uh, Her daughter had called me to the house because spooky things were happening. Things were going bump in the night as she sat watch over her mother in the final days of her life. And this woman was in terror herself. You know, Satan isn't good to those who worship him. He's cruel. He's a cruel taskmaster. Baal wasn't good to those who worshiped him. On Mount Carmel, you remember how Elijah challenged the worshipers of Baal to produce fire that would consume the sacrifice on the altar of Baal, and they cut themselves and cried from morning until night. Baal wasn't good to his worshipers. You'll find that even the current gods of this world aren't good to their worshipers, but God is good. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that he is good and does good. So he's good in the absolute sense of righteousness, but he does good in the sense of his grace and his mercy toward us. And that leads us to the next one. His mercy is everlasting. And finally, his truth endureth to all generations. One of the reasons I'm a Christian is I don't like to be proven wrong. I I don't like to have to change my mind or to have new evidence root out what I have long held to be the truth. The wonderful thing is that as all the hammers of the ages have beat on this anvil, the anvil stands and the hammers wear out. The Bible is true. It's not true in some esoteric sense. It's true in the sense that it presents to us propositional truth. The words are true. The Word of God God calls us to assign worth to those things that are eternal and beneficial, not mere passing fancies of our lives. Many of today's objects of worship will one day be objects of ridicule. Many of them are illusory, but God and His Word will endure forever. There was a presidential straw poll in Iowa, and I accepted an invitation to attend on behalf of a candidate who was being uh, supported by one of my friends, and so I was there. There were some good candidates there, some who gave compelling testimonies of faith in Christ, and I thank God for that. Uh, Some who have lives and voting records to back that up. There was also an Elvis impersonator there. You know, the funny thing is he got more attention than the candidates. If, if you ever see a picture of me talking with him, I, I want you to know I was witnessing to him. I wasn't worshiping him. And he went to church with me, as a matter of fact. Do you know the Lord in a personal way? Have you come to know him as your Savior? Can you worship him? right from the heart. Have you become a sheep in his pasture? Can you rest and say, lo, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil? 
for He is with me. Do you worship God joyfully, gladly coming before His presence with singing, entering His gates with thanksgiving and blessing His holy name? In my last church, there was one lady who always sat right up in the very front, and stoically she sat there through the whole service, never smiling and never singing. One day after I'd been her pastor for about a year, she said to me, Pastor, you probably wonder why I never sing. She said, but if you ever heard me, then you would know why I never sing. And I said to her, do you know God enjoys the joyful racket of a born-again sheep in his pasture more than he does an opera singer who doesn't know him. I really believe that with all my heart. Have you come to know him? Does it come right from the heart? Is it based on the truth of the Word of God? If not, as I close in prayer, now I would like to invite you to right where you are, pray to receive Christ as your Savior, recognizing that you're a sinner, that he died to take away your sins, and that by faith in him, you can become his child. Heavenly Father, thank you for these precious moments together in your word. Thank you for the 100th Psalm. Thank you, dear God, that you receive our praise, even though it may not be pretty to the human ear, it's precious to you. In Jesus' name.